This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 28, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. When the state creates licenses for medical professionals in various fields, they're carving up territory. And then the incumbent practitioners will fight to defend and expand their unique territory. The results of that fighting have been enormously costly for patients seeking care. Cato's Jeff Singer provides some of the historical context of these fights. When we talk about medicine and we talk about receiving health care, uh, what do we what is scope of practice and why is it why does it affect our healthcare delivery systems uh, so much? Well, scope of practice is a term that refers to uh, what different healthcare licensed healthcare practitioners are permitted to to do in in that field. Uh, since the late 1800s, states began licensing healthcare professionals, uh, and uh, when a state gives you permission or a license to practice, let's say, as uh, a dentist, it then defines in a law what dentists may and may not do. So it would say something like dentists, you know, for example, dentists can't do surgery outside of the oral cavity, those kind of things. Um, and uh, so it's kind of the licensing then begs the question, okay, so I'm licensed as uh, a nurse practitioner or as a physician. So what does that mean? What can I do? And then uh, in the in the law, it, 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 it defines what it, can be done that's supposed to be enforced by the licensing board that is established. And then, of course, uh, from time to time, different groups can go before the legislature and ask for uh, adjustments to be made in those scopes of practice that have been defined. So, uh, you know, I'm familiar, at least my household, rather, is, is very familiar with cases of like a board of dentistry reaching out to uh, people who do teeth whitening and saying, no, 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 buddy, that's dentistry right there. And we can argue about whether or not that's uh, reasonable. I, in general, it probably is not, especially when you could buy the same ingredients at a store and do it yourself at home. Um, but for nurse practitioners, for you know other kinds of nurses, uh, we've we've talked on this program recently about prescribing psychologists, uh, people who have you know the the kinds of training and and uh, credibility with patients in order to do do that kind of work to prescribe uh, mental health uh, medicine and also uh, to speak with those people, do counseling with them. Uh, you know, what is the political state of play look like when uh, you know some group? of practitioners want to expand or want to practice on their own? Yeah, I think it's important to get, add a little historical perspective. So uh, in the 19th century, mo for most of the 19th century, the idea of having to get permission from the state to make an honest living was a very alien concept to Americans. Uh, and the American Medical Association was created in the 1840s at a time, you know, when Obviously, the science of medicine was in, relatively in its infancy, and there were various schools of thought about uh, way to, the way to conduct the medical practice. And the American Medical Association, one of its missions was to get all the states to license physicians. Uh, and by licensing physicians, this way they could, they, they argued, they can keep out, you know, the riffraff, the bad 
doctors, the people who who are not really good doctors. And in the early days, they went before state legislators and were rebuffed. But by the late 1800s, um, already states were beginning to license other trades like carpenters or plumbers. So the concept wasn't as alien. And the, and the AMA also switched strategies and created chapters in every state. And then in each of the state legislators, they, legislatures, they would lobby. So when uh, states started licensing doctors in the early days, the licensing boards consisted of members of the American, of the state chapter of the American Medical Association. And uh, they were very successful in limiting who could enter the field. So licensing, even though it's always the people advocating for it, are always saying that it's to protect the consumers. It's almost never happens that consumers are requesting that different professions or trades be licensed. It's that those incumbent trades that do that don't want outside competitors. So to this day, for example, you can't get a license to practice medicine unless you graduated an AMA accredited medical school. And in the early 20th century, in 1910, they commissioned what's called the Flexner Report. Uh, the AMA did, uh, which um, recommended the way medical education should be. They adopted that as part of their, their accreditation process. And as a result, uh, the number of medical schools in this country diminished dramatically. In fact, there were seven black medical schools because in those days, due to racism, many medical schools wouldn't accept blacks. So they, they created their own. Five of the seven black medical schools didn't meet accreditation criteria and disappeared. There are only two to this day that remain, Meharry in Tennessee and Howard University in, in Washington, D.C. So, uh, and, and the number of female physicians, which were actually predominating at the late 1800s, they diminished dramatically too, because medical school became so expensive that only, only affluent people were actually able to afford to go to medical school. And, uh, I, I think a lot of people made decisions that, uh, well, you know, um, to spend all that money on somebody who's then going to have children and drop out of the profession, it's not not worth the expenditure. So it wasn't until recent times again that, that we see women and minorities back in the medical fields. But so when in, in modern times, there's different health professions, all of whom are licensed, started to get more ed educated and develop more skills, they sought to use those skills and their training to offer services to people. But of course, that creates a whole bunch of territorial battles between the various licensed professions. The, obviously, the medical profession doesn't want other health professions doing what it could do. And similarly, th th those other professions don't like, don't like the other professions encroaching on their territory. So the whole thing becomes a political battle where legislators, most of whom are pretty ignorant about the science and, and, and the, and the you know, the technical aspects of any of these fields are asked to make a decision as to which trained healthcare professional can do what. And that's where we're at today. So how does the military differ or how does, does the federal government differ whenever you and I end up talking about an issue surrounding uh, the practice of medicine and what regulatory or legal hurdles exist, you often will point to the military. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not a legal expert, but I do know that it's been accepted uh, case law uh, uh, for decades now that uh, the military, the VHA system, basically government uh, healthcare systems are insulated from state licensing laws. You know, the states have constitutionally the police power to license professions and trades, but the 
federal system is exempt from that. So, for example, in order to be a physician in the VA system, they require you have a license in good standing in any any one of the 50 states or District of Columbia. So let's say, you know, in my case, I'm licensed in Arizona. I want to work for the VA system. I meet the qualifications. They hire me. And then I decide I want to transfer to the VA in uh, in Maine because I want to live in that part of the country. I don't have to get a Maine license. I'm in the VA system. I just moved over to Maine now and I'm practicing there. As long as I'm within the VA system and I don't go out into the community, if I went out into the community as an independent practitioner, then I'd have to get a license in that state. Uh, and the same thing applies to a lot of these uh, other healthcare professions who we who seek to ex expand their scope of practice. So, for example, as we've spoken about before, the military, again, uh, federal system, they're always looking for ways to, you know, maximize the efficiency of their healthcare professionals to, for their for their service people. So they needed to increase the number of prescribing psychotherapists, and they started a pilot program where they trained PhD or PsyD clinical psychologists and clinical psychopharmacology, and they found uh, that they make, they're just as, as good as MD psychiatrists in treating mental health disorders with medications. And 30 years out now, uh, prescribing psychologists work in the, in the military and in the public health service and in the Indian health service. Also, they were one of the pioneers of using nurses as nurse anesthetists. So now in 19 states, nurse anesthetists who are specially trained nurses, they could work independent of physicians. They could be self-employed. But in the rest of the states, they have to work for an anesthesiologist, a physician, either an MD or DO. Um, the reason, one of the reasons why we know that nurse anesthetists could function and perform very well is because we have the experience of the military to look at because they were using nurse anesthetists in the military and in the VA system. And it's a, a lot, so in, in a certain respect, the federal system uh, being insulated from all of the politics in the state legislatures and just concerned about, look, we're trying to put our healthcare personnel to most effective use. Um, they have provided this service to us people in the policy world by giving us demonstration projects that we could point to. There's a study that came out just a couple of months ago. It's a very important study. It was done by researchers at the University of Washington and the University of Michigan on over 800,000 VA patients. Now, there's always been a debate raging about allowing nurse practitioners to practice as primary care providers independently of physicians. And currently, uh, many states still don't allow it. As, the end, as of the end of 2022, 25 states and the District of Columbia allow nurse practitioners full independent practice authority as primary care providers. Uh, the American Medical Association opposes this, and they'll point to studies saying they're not as cost-effective, or they order too many tests, or they're just not as they don't have as good healthcare outcomes as physicians. On the other hand, the nurse practitioner lobby will point to their studies showing the opposite. And of course, everybody cherry picks, and most of the studies are not good studies because a lot of the people who go to a nurse practitioner versus a physician. They kind of self, they have self-selection bias, different people with different kind of problems. But there was this great study that just came out uh, that looked at over 803,000 VHA patients from the years 2012, 2010 to 2012 at over 500 centers. And it's what they call a quasi-experimental study They, they it, because they were able to randomize and get rid of this selection bias 
as as much as 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 possible. What they did was all of the VHA patients who were getting primary care when their primary care doctor either retired or transferred or wherever, where they needed to be reassigned to a new, new primary care doctor, they were randomly assigned either to a nurse practitioner or a physician, totally randomly. And then they looked at the outcomes data based on uh, cost effectiveness and uh, uh, incidence of uh, and healthcare outcomes and the likelihood of needing to be admitted to the hospital. And they found that when it came to primary care, nurse practitioners had the same healthcare outcomes as physicians, and they had the same cost effectiveness, they actually had a slightly decreased incidence of their patients needing to be hospitalized than the physicians. So, And this is probably the, the, the most kind of randomized study we've ever done on a huge population. Now, this doesn't mean nurse practitioners would be great brain surgeons or heart surgeons or you name it. Uh, obviously, if nurse practitioners were the equivalent of physicians in everything, then we wouldn't need to have medical schools. But at least in certain areas, it, it appears that they are I equivalent to physicians. And to deny well, deny patients access um, when when we already have primary health care provider shortages around this country, we have mental health care shortages, and, and we're not allowing people to get access to these kind of health care practitioners who can help them. When I've heard complaints and we've received some complaints uh, about some of the recent podcasts that we've done on uh, prescribing psychologists and other scope of practice uh, issues, it wasn't that long ago that I had to wait three months for an appointment with a primary care physician. And I wonder the degree to which the people who want to limit scope of practice Shouldn't they have to defend that? Right. They usually try to defend it by rationalizing that they give better quality care and it's in the patient's best interest. And I think this is an important point that we sometimes lose sight of. There's, there's an overarching philosophical issue here, which is every human being has the right to decide for to whom they want to seek health care, what quality and level of health care they want. And while you might be able to make a very powerful argument that a physician is better than a nurse practitioner for certain things, and you might be right, at the end of the day, that's not, it shouldn't be your decision. You shouldn't be able as a doctor to decide for the patients of this country who they can and cannot see. That's their decision. So we have to remember that we have to respect these the, the people's autonomy, their agency, their sovereignty. And, and and the other thing is, it's not just, by the way, nurse practitioners or prescribing psychologists. There's a whole host of, uh, in many states, optometrists uh, are not permitted to prescribe medication at all. Finally, in my state of Arizona, after 20 years, they finally got permission to prescribe eye drops for pink eye because the ophthalmologists, the MDs, argued, oh, it's very complicated. You can't do it. Or uh, now we're seeing more and more pharmacist scope of practice being expanded. Uh, it wasn't, uh, there was a time when pharmacists couldn't do vaccinations. Now we see, you can go to any pharmacy and get immunizations. There's no problem with that. Um, in many states now, they're allowing pharmacists to prescribe uh, birth control pills so women don't have to go take the afternoon off from work and sit in a doctor's waiting room for an hour and a half for the doctor to give them this prescription. Even though, by the way, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has said for 20 years, you shouldn't have to 
get a prescription for us for this. This should be over the counter, but that's the law. So at least pharmacists are helping out some by at least mitigating some of the cost and in time and money. Uh, some states, Colorado, Nevada, Oregon, and California, allowing pharmacists to prescribe pre and post exposure prophylaxis for HIV so that you don't have to take time and expense to go see a doctor for it. So there's a lot of different healthcare fields aside from nurse practitioners and psychologists who could have their scopes of practice expanded. And these are all services that could be offered to people who are now not being allowed, they're not being enabled to get access to these, to these things. Jeff Singer is a surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.